But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself a portion, some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Are you ready to get into God's word? All right. Man, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do open up to the book of Acts, we have been in this incredible book, and today we find ourselves in chapter 5. We love the Bible here. Man, if you want to get to know God, you need to know his word. He reveals himself through his word. So if you want to understand God, you need to understand his revelation. And we take the Bible serious so much that we take a systematic approach to it and teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And Acts has been incredible so far. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying preaching it. But today we come to a really difficult passage in the book of Acts. In some ways, uh, it's, it's a difficult text to study, and it's definitely, definitely a difficult text to preach. I mean, I had to just jump up here after Tiffany had read that Ananias died, then his wife dies, and then they buried her next to her husband. And then I have to come up and preach on that. So it's, it's a, uh, a difficult text that we're looking at today. Um, and it's difficult because it just, it doesn't seem to fit in, into the narrative, you know. It's, it's almost as though the story's out of place because in Acts chapter 2 through 4, we see this, this biblical unity and we see how amazing it is. We see this early church who, it was a, a group of people who really did truly love each other, care about each other, um, even sacrifice for each other. And Luke paints this real vivid picture of what unity looks like. And everything is the way it should be. Everything is going right, and people are coming to know Jesus day in, day out. The church, even though they were persecuted, so the first few chapters talk about that persecution, the church is on, on the mountaintop right now spiritually. And, uh, and then we come to Acts chapter 5, and things get crazy. So here's, here's what I've always thought about approaching Acts 5. We know that there is no way that Luke recorded every single story, every single detail that happened in the early church. Why couldn't Luke have done what ESPN does? 
Why, why could not, why, why Luke couldn't just record the highlights? I, I don't know. You know, the stories that show the unity. Why not just stick to the good stories that make the church look good, that give us something to aspire to be, right? Why would Luke include this? He's already shown the struggles in the church. He's already shown what persecution was outside the church. And he's shown how the church got victory and how they did it through unity, They've experienced all kinds of stuff, but man, they experience victory. And then we come to this. He, he adds this downer story in chapter 5. But this story brings home a really powerful truth. And I want you to hear me, okay? The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel will never be opposition from outside the church. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel will always be sin inside the church. No amens. I know that's... <laughs> this story is in the Bible, so we know it's important. It shows us why we have to, and I mean absolutely have to guard against the sins of the world in the church. Man, I have to talk about sin today. We don't like to talk about sin in the church. It makes people uncomfortable. I can get uncomfortable sometimes talking about sin, but the Bible has a whole lot to say about sin. The Bible says sin's pervasive. It says it's deadly. Sinning is believing a false promise from the world above a true promise from God. All our sins find their origin in the desires rooted inside our own hearts. These, this is what the Bible says about sin. And some sins, you know, the big ones that we like to focus on usually, are blatantly discouraged. We do a real good job in the church of doing that. You know, we, we, we know the big ones and we keep away from those. And, and that's good, keep away from those. Uh... They're, they're blatantly discouraged. Some sin uh, deceptively praised, right? And others are simply accepted because they're so common. And sometimes we're way too hospitable with our sin. Here's my question. When was the last time we looked our sin in the mirror and came away broken? When was the last time we felt the gravity of our sin as betrayal against a holy God? And I'm not talking about just the big sins. You gotta understand, sin is just missing the mark. And every single person in this auditorium today has missed the mark. So today, we're not going to shy away from this topic, even though it's a difficult one, um, sometimes very hard to understand, even harder to preach. But this passage shows us just how much God despises sin. And it lets us, it lets us know that despite the explosion of the growth in the early church, they had moments of weakness, even gross sin. And I believe that their deaths, Ananias and Sapphira deaths, serve as a warning to the church today and that God has a lot to teach us if we're willing to listen. So uh, I'm going to be really transparent with you today. Really transparent. I don't think a passage, I thought when I preached the book of Acts, of course, I'm Pentecostal, I'm going to love the, the, all the different chapters on the Holy Spirit. That's going to be my favorite. I can't believe how much this passage, first of all, I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and just read right through it and didn't really apply it to my own life. I cannot tell you how much this verse has ministered to me this last week of this passage, reading this, and even thinking about it in terms of our church. See, I truly believe that New Heights Church is, a, is about to experience a movement. I do. I, I, I believe we are on the verge of something amazing. And let me, let me just stop for a second. Let me give you a few statistics that should encourage you. Did you know that not only have we doubled in size, so when I came in, and of course, you gotta remember, I came right in the middle of the pandemic, so that definitely affected where we were at as a church. But did you know we've doubled from where we were when I came, and then before that, we finally, we have finally, somebody praise God, the last two months, we've gotten back to what we were before COVID. And not only... 
not only we gotten back to where we were, but we are now, we, we are above what we were before COVID. God is good. He's doing something, right? That's something, get excited. God's moving. I mean, walk down in our kids area right now. We're packed with kids. We're so packed with young kids that we are desperate for people to sign up and work in the nursery. That is a good problem to have. Man, we are exploding down there. Poor Mary and poor Elizabeth. They've got their hands full. I believe God is doing something. Our board meetings have been incredible. Times of worship, times of prayer, God's doing something incredible. I really do believe God. And that makes what we're reading here in Acts really, really important. Because I believe that God's wanting to speak through his word to guide us, especially as we look at these first few chapters of Acts. Now, as we read about the growth of the church, we need to, really need, we need to consider these things. Almost as though the life of the church depends on them, because it does. I mean, this is, this is God's manual for having a healthy church, all right? And I've heard it said before, well, first of all, I, you've heard me say this before. Our church, I want it to be a movement, not an organization. And movements move, right? To be a part of the movement, you've got to move. I've heard it said before that church on Sunday morning is the huddle of a football game. The pastor calls the plays on Sunday, and the members go out and run it Monday through Friday. Unfortunately, most churches act like the huddle is the main event, and you want to say, guys, go out and run the play. This is not the main event. The main event's Monday through Friday. We're calling the plays right now. We want the team to go out. Best ministry is going to take place outside these doors, right? That's where real ministry is going to happen. That's where the lost and the hurting are, outside these doors. We are God's redeemed. We're coming in here to get encouraged. We want to hear God's word. We want to be challenged. And so Monday through Friday, that's where the real ministry takes place, right? So remember that as we, we approach this text, because today we're going to see this really ugly moment in the early church, and the scary part, the scary part is that we are so easily capable of doing the same thing. I think that's what frightens me the most as I read this passage, of how capable I am of making the same mistakes that Ananias made. All right, so today in our text, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to close it with worship. Pastor Enos told me right before I came up here, he said, we are right on time it all depends on you. <laughs> We're going to try our best to give a little response time with worship, but today uh, Cincinnati Christian School is going to hold their graduation, and so, you know, I know how I can get sometimes when I preach, so what I've done today is I have designed this sermon with a question. I want you to answer this question. So if we, if we abruptly end at noon, it's not that I had planned it or didn't plan it that way. It was, it was on purpose. I want you to end. I want you to leave this church today, this church service, with this question. I want you to be real and honest with yourselves about it. Here it is. Are you ready? Do I value my spiritual appearance more than I value my spiritual authenticity? Now, the worst thing that can happen this morning is for anybody to walk away from this thinking, man, somebody else really needed to hear that sermon. Because <laughs> how we, here's the truth. How we answer the, this question today individually will have huge ramifications for what God does in and through us corporately. Okay? So, if we're going to answer this question truthfully, we need to make sure we, we understand really what's going on in this story. So again, read with me uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, 
and with his wife's knowledge. Look at that. And with his wife's knowledge. They're together. They're making this decision together. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Let's get one thing straight before we dive into this anymore. Who's behind this? Who's behind this? Satan. Okay, do you see this? Satan's behind this. Here's something worth noting. This is the first post-cross appearance of Satan. It's pretty important, and here's why. Before the cross, Satan's strategy was always to kill Jesus. I mean, just go read the Gospels. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Satan is determined to kill Jesus. Before he was even born, Satan was strategizing how he's going to end the life of Jesus. He was determined to to end the life of Jesus. Now the mission is to destroy the church of Jesus. And what's his strategy here? He's gonna destroy the church from within. From within. Now, do you see the word filled here? This word here, it's in contrast to filled with the Holy Spirit, which we just talked about last week. So here's something interesting, okay? He's using the same word. That means we can be filled with garbage. Previous previous chapter, we learned we could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's my question to you. Liz, my wife, who, who's done teaching before, would always say to the kids, you can fill yourself up with e- either good stuff or bad stuff. It's going to affect you. And she says the same thing to me when it comes to food. Justin, you, <laughs> you can keep eating garbage, and it's going to have an effect on you, or you can fill yourself up with good food, right? So this morning, I told her, hey, when we go on this trip to Israel, I'm going to be really good. But I gotta be a good steward. I already bought Skyline. Today I polished off a five-way, beans and onions and cheese in the morning. And it, she's right, it filled me up with bad stuff. <laughs> okay? But, but you can fill yourself up with good stuff, you can fill yourself up with bad stuff. What are you watching on TV? What are you being entertained by? Really, what, what, what are you listening to? Uh, I always tell my kids, that stuff's gonna affect you. But you can fill yourself up with God's word too. Are you filling yourself up with God's word when you're jumping on YouTube? Are you watching preachers and teachers? Make sure you're watching good ones because there's a lot of ones out there. But what are you feeding yourself, right? Look at verse four, it says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. See, Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple, they come together, and Ananias brings this gift. Now, we've talked about how, we already know in the previous chapter, there's different people in the church that are selling their land because they care so much about other people. You remember what we talked about last week? When you believe in Jesus, right, uh, your love for, uh, it loosens your love for things and it tightens your love for people, right? That's what happens when you give your heart to Jesus, you believe in Jesus. And so we see that happening in the previous verse. You've got these people selling land and giving to the poor. It wasn't Christian communism, by the way. It was a voluntary thing. People could do this because it was, it was the work of the presence of the Holy, or the Holy Spirit in their lives. It was the Holy Spirit compelling, compelling them to go and do these things. We've got some land, we're not using it, we're gonna sell it, we're gonna give it away, we're gonna give the money, no problem. Uh, it, that's just like Barnabas. The failure here that you're about to read, that we're about to see, it was not that they didn't give the right amount. So oftentimes people will read this story and, and they, they think this story is about money. It's not about money. Okay, it's not, it's not that they didn't give the right amount and God's like, I'm gonna kill you for it. You're done, I'm gonna zap you. 
You didn't give. You, that offering plate went around and you did not give what you should have. That's not, it, it's not a certain amount here that's, that's the issue, okay? Here's, here's the problem. They misrepresented what they gave. They said they gave one number, but they were giving far less. They were both lying, okay? Sins, like lying, always come from somewhere, right? These lies went all the way back to the deepest parts of the heart. J.D. Greer puts it this way. Jealousy, uh, lying, cheating, not being generous are all like smoke from a fire that leads back to the fires at which you are worshiping. That's good. The problem is not the smoke, but the fire that created the smoke. Do you hear me? (laughs) Okay, for me, all my life, I've always been real transparent with this church, all my life I've been a people pleaser. And then God called me to be a pastor and taught me, you can't please everyone. (laughs) You just can't do it. All my life I've been a people pleaser. I care about what people think about me. It's important to me. I want to be liked by people. When I was little, that manifested itself in a lot of different ways. You know, you give in to peer pressure when, when you don't want to be the one guy that's disappointing anybody. I, I was pretty good when it came to morals. Like, if they were doing something I really didn't, I, I knew was wrong, I had enough backbone to say no to that. But, but I remember when I was young, my dad being a, a pastor, he gave me a ministry opportunity. He said, Justin, I want you to lead this group. Uh, your children's pastor wants these different groups being led, and I signed you up to do it. I was so excited. Went to the meeting. My kid's pastor told me what she expected from me, what she wanted, and then I went back and told my group, and they wanted to do something different. Now, this isn't like a, a, a issue when it comes to sin, necessarily, because it's not like they were wanting me to run the group different, but I wanted to be liked by this group. And I remember telling my dad, none of the kids want to do this. None of them want to do it the way the kids' pastor does. And so my, my dad said, well, you got to do what God tells you to do. Well, Dad, God's not speaking to me. It's not like when I go to bed, he's like, hey, do this or do that. He goes, Justin, learn to hear from God through his word and through his, the spiritual authority in your life. That's how God's going to speak to you. So if your kids' pastor is saying she wants it this way, then God's speaking to you. I struggled so much with doing that because all my friends wanted me to do it this other way. And I struggled with it because I wanted to be liked. And all of a sudden, they didn't like the way I was doing it. And so I had this per- they, they had this perception of me, and I struggled with it. I struggled with it. Now, what I really needed is, is to just stop worrying. I needed to be filled with the love of God. I know that's a Sunday school answer. I know that's a lot of you are going to be like, wow, that was real simple, Justin. That's so deep. It's truth, though. It's truth, right? We, need, we don't need to just fan away the smoke. We need to put out the fire. You're going to put out the fire. You've got to get back to the basics. Your love for God needs to be greater than anything else, right? Amen? So you're one of two things. J.D. Greer went on to say this. You're one of two things. You're filled with the Spirit, which leads to satisfaction and joy, or Satan's filling your heart with the love of money, the praise of people, and you're characterized by dissatisfaction, jealousy, and lies. Okay, and that's, that's the essence of spiritual inauthenticity. Lord, when you care more about those things than you do about anything else. See, spiritual inauthenticity appears to be one way, but it proves to be something else. God hates Listen to me. God hates spiritual inauthenticity. He doesn't value spiritual appearance over spiritual authenticity. Do you hear me? And I think the story in Acts really speaks to our culture and to us today. Because the text has a challenge for us, and it's this. Don't just mimic holiness. Don't just mimic holiness. 
right? That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were trying to do. Because if you back up a little bit to the end of chapter 4, which we went over last week, the Bible says this, Acts chapter 4, verse 36 through 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, what we have here is a contrast. In fact, the beginning of chapter 5 in some of your translations starts with the word but. Usually sentences don't start with the word but. It's a contrast here. Barnabas, who sold a field, brought all the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And after Ananias and Sapphira see what Barnabas did, they say, man, we want to look like Barnabas. We want to do what Barnabas did. So they sell their property, keep back some of the money for themselves, and said, we're like Barnabas. We're like Barnabas. They come and lay this down at the apostles' feet. They mimic holiness. Somewhere along the way, and many people today believed and believe that Christianity is about doing certain things. And by doing these certain things on the outside, you create a certain appearance, a perception of what others in the church think about you. And that becomes a God. Here's what you need to know. That's not necessarily authentic, and I'm not, that's not necessarily authentic Christianity, and I'm not here today to tell you don't do what the Bible tells you to do. I'm not telling you don't give to the church. I'm telling you to check your motives, because you can still do all the right things with all the right, wrong motives. You can do what's right and have the wrong motive, and that's what I'm warning against today. I'm not telling you don't give. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to give and give abundantly, and then be okay when nobody knows about it. <laughs> Don't give because you want somebody to see you, right? David Platt says this, somewhere along the way in the 21st century Bible belt, I think Ohio would fall under that maybe, of America, the church has created an idea similar to this, that spiritual authenticity is summed up in going to church and observing religious regulations, doing the right things, saying the right things, and being known as nice, decent church people. And that is what Christianity is about. And that's not what Christianity is about. This is spiritual appearance that lacks spiritual authenticity. Look, your spiritual life is is way more than what you do on, on the platform when people are watching. It's just like pastors and people in ministry. I've always heard this growing up my entire life. Ministry is not platform. It's one of the smallest things that we do as ministers. This is, this is one aspect of ministry. Ministry is serving. But what we do so many times, we create this, this church that uh, glorifies preachers, glorifies amazing worship leaders, and we think that that's ministry. Ministry is washing people's feet. Ministry is giving up my Saturday to go help somebody. That's ministry. What you see up here, it means nothing if I don't follow through with my life. If my actions don't back up what I preach, it's not real authentic ministry, right? Because Christianity is much more than appearance. Christianity is a heart issue. Now, I want to go back to the Bible because I want to show you the contrast here. There, there is a contrast. He's, he's, Luke is contrasting between, uh, uh, not Barabbas, that is the wrong guy. We're not looking at him. Barnabas, there we go. He, he's, he's looking at Barnabas's life and then he's contrasting it with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's go back to the Bible just again to get a glimpse into the life of Barnabas because it gives us a real clear picture of what authentic Christianity is, what an authentic believer is. So right after, if you go, you look at, I think we got it up on stage, Acts chapter nine, verse 26. 
right after Saul, who the persecutor of Christians, guy's on a mission to kill all the Christians, now he's, he's come to know the faith in Jesus. And listen to what Acts 9.26 says. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I think that would be all of us if, if we had lived in that time and we watched some of our friends die at the hands of this guy and all of a sudden he's showing up to our Bible study wanting to be a part of it. I think we'd be nervous. I think that's when I would call my security and say, keep an eye on this guy. Um, so verse 27 through 28 says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. Barnabas is risking to vouch for this guy that nobody liked. He's risking to vouch for a guy that had a really bad reputation. Okay, now look in Acts chapter 11, because now the church is starting to grow in Antioch, and all kinds of new believers are joining the church. By the way, that's the kind of growth you want. And it says in verse 22 through 24, it says, News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and great number of people were brought to the Lord. Barnabas, man, he's, a represent- he's representing Uh, the church in Jerusalem. He goes to be a part of helping this church in Antioch get off the ground. Uh, And then later on again, uh, there's something going on in the church in Antioch. In the same chapter, in verse 29, it says this. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they took up an offering for the poor. Then in verse 30, it says this. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas was the guy they trusted. Barnabas was trustworthy. They knew they could trust Barnabas. He, they knew he could trust him handling the money. He's going to get the money to the church. He was a guy that was trustworthy. Now let's jump to Acts 13 too. Here we have the church. They're setting apart missionaries to go and proclaim the gospel. And listen to this in verse 2. Acts 13 verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. One more, one more, I promise. Jump with me. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 40. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in some city, I think it's Pamphylia, uh, We'll call it the big city of P. And had not gone with them to work, verse 39, and there rose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. How about that? Here, here Barnabas, one more time, uh, the defender giving this guy named John Mark a second chance. Do you see... I hope you're seeing this. I hope you're starting to see, because this is a real picture of what spiritual authenticity looks like. Barnabas sacrificed his possessions. In chapter, chapter 4, he sacrificed his pride. Uh, and it's never about him getting exalted. Never. He sacrificed his passions. He sacrificed his dreams, his ambitions. He's going around preaching the gospel. He's jumping in wherever he's needed. And that's why he's willing to take the money to the poor to help them out. He's Mr. Volunteer. He's a part of the church planning teams. He's jumping in everywhere. He goes on trips to encourage the churches that have already been started. This is spiritual authenticity. He doesn't care about getting a pat on the back. 
Do you understand this? What, what he is doing is because he loves God and he's serving God. It's not about recognition. He doesn't care about what other people think of him. He's doing it because he loves God. He's jumping in anywhere that there's a need. Man, that is spiritual authenticity. And it's the complete opposite of Ananias and Sapphira who were mimicking holiness, not sacrificing everything. Listen to me this morning. It's so easy to create an idea that holiness and spiritual authenticity consist in doing certain things. You've got your list of things you do and then you think you're holy. It doesn't work that way. It's not holiness. Holiness is not avoiding all the major sins that we despise in the church and, and we don't do these things, therefore we're holy. And I'm not telling you to stay away. This whole passage is about staying away from sin. So I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you to go and indulge in sin and to do that, but I'm telling you, you can't just check your list and think you're holy. Man, I've stayed away from this. I've been, I've been pretty good in this area. I've never done this. And then you start, then you do the comparison game too. I'll compare myself to so-and-so. Well, I've never made that mistake. Pretty good. It's like parenting, right? We compare our, there's certain families that I hate hanging out with because I just feel like I'm the worst parent in the world. Just be honest, right? And then there's certain families I love hanging out with because I feel amazing. <laughs> I feel like I'm an all-star, David Platt says this, being holy is a gambling, a risking of our entire lives for the sake of the glory of Christ and his church. That's what holiness is, and that's what spiritual authenticity is. You know, we don't come here this morning just for spiritual appearance. At least I hope not. If that's the reason you came here this morning, then you dishonor our God and worship. If that's the reason you came here this morning, you, you dishonor our God and worship if you're coming here just for an appearance. My prayer, my hope for this church is that people are coming for spiritual authenticity because people love God, the God who, who extended grace and mercy. They're all in. They're willing to jump in anywhere. They're willing to change a diaper. They're willing to clean a toilet because they love God and are willing to serve wherever there's a need. Because sometimes in churches, there's a lot more appearance than there is authenticity. And I'll, I'll even take it a step further so you don't think I'm ripping on just church people. In ministry, sometimes there's a whole lot more appearance than there is authenticity. Sometimes we as pastors are the best at putting on a show. But man, if anything that we take from Acts, it's way more than the appearance, right? I'm praying that New Heights Church becomes a movement that shows the world more than just spiritual appearance. Ananias and Sapphira stand for the exact opposite, right? Namely, they're people who have not really been changed on the inside by being satisfied with all that God is for them in Jesus, but who still want some place in the visible church. Now, remember the question I asked you today. Do I value spiritual appearance more than spiritual authenticity? And I'm not done with my sermon, but I want to stop and pray over this point right now and over you. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us right now as we look at this story, right now as we ask ourselves this question, can we be honest with each other? That we'd want spiritual authenticity more than spiritual appearance. I pray for each of us here today that you would be supremely satisfying to us. I pray that we won't crave the ego satisfaction of being seen for our good works. I pray that God would be our greatest reward and not the praise of men. 
I pray that you, you would be glorified because we are so satisfied in, in you that the joy of knowing you is gonna overflow in generosity and all of the good deeds that we do will come from that place and not the place where we're wanting approval and we're wanting praise from men. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me, verse five through, through, seven, through eight. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I heard one preacher say that was the job of the interns. <laughs> Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. You know, if Acts 5 was made into a movie, this would be probably the most emotional scene. Very, very intense. We in some ways have, have a dilemma here because... What is she supposed to do, right? What is the right thing for this wife to do? Is she supposed to be a good wife and submit to her husband? And I want to just stop for a minute and ask yourself, what would you have done? You and your husband agree together to, to misrepresent yourself, and then you're put on the spot and you're asked publicly. And I, I want to note a few things here. <laughs> few things. We talk about submission in the Bible all the time. We preach through the book of Ephesians. That was tough. <laughs> We got through it. Here's a, here's, here's a word for you wives out there. Submission never means following your husband into sin. Okay? Now, it can mean following your husband into a mistake, but submission never means following him into sin. Here's, what I, here's why I make a big deal out of this, because sometimes when Christian women get married, they relinquish all responsibility for their lives just to go, go along with their husbands. But, but here's the deal. One day, you will stand before God, like Sapphira did here, and you will answer for yourself. God's judgment on, on Sapphira for supporting her husband's sin shows she was accountable, just as accountable as him. In fact, Peter's response indicates that she had, if she had refused to participate in the deception, her life probably would have been spared. It's a perfect example of a time when a wife should not have submitted to her husband. Her husband was wrong. He was not leading like he should have. And you have to answer to God for your lifestyle choices, your generosity, your involvement in church, your salvation. You have to answer to God for that. And here's my message to guys now. Hey, hey Christian husbands and fathers, your sin never affects just you. Ephesians 5, 25 through 26 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Man, unfortunately, too many people get caught up, real hung up on this, uh, Paul's advice to, to ladies here, and they get hung up on what he says to wives uh, about the submitting to the husband's part, but you know something? Paul gives three times as much space to instructions for husbands as he does to the wives. So, fellas... Take heed, listen up, because what Paul says to men is just as countercultural today as any biblical teaching on submission. Right? I get it, our society doesn't like the idea of submission, but it turns out the men of our society don't really like to lead either. Talking to men, talking to you husbands, you fathers, the Bible is clear that we're supposed to lead. Don't miss, to, don't miss this in today's text. Ananias failed his wife. He failed his family. He didn't lead properly. 
Did you know when Eve was brought to Adam, he already had a relationship with God. He was given the responsibility of passing on to her the commands of God and leading her and obeying them. Men, as the spiritual leaders in your home, you're to wash your wife, just like Paul says, with water by the word. Do you know what that means? You lead your family in the application of scripture and to apply a scripture, you have to know scripture. You have to know scripture to be able to lead your family and apply it. Washing your wife with the words means you become the primary mouthpiece declaring to her God's feelings about her, that she's valued, cherished, precious in God's sight, has a bright future because of God's plan for her. Ask yourself this, if your wife's spiritual identity was based solely on your words to her, what would she think of herself? (laughs) I'm I'm coming hard on guys, I know, but this is in the text. Ananias failed. He failed. Men, lead by example. You know, Jesus believed that his example was critical. In fact, he acknowledged this fact. He told the disciples this in John 13, 15. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done, done to you. And then Paul, he followed, uh, p- followed Jesus' lead, and he also told his followers to do the same when he said this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Can you say these words, husbands, to your wife and your kids? Can you say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Can you say it? I'll tell you what, being an example is really important if you desire your wife, your kids to have a sincere respect for you as the leader of your home. Do you want your wife and kids to simply respect you because, well, you're the head of the household or because they see your godly character, your behavior, your loving actions, and your walk of faith? Because if that's the case, you've got to lead by example. Are you an example of godliness in your speech, your patience, your purity, your faith, your pursuit of God, your personal discipline, your commitment to moral principles? Can you say to your wife and kids, I want you to follow Christ just like I follow Jesus? And when you fail, because you will fail, are you an example of honest, humble acknowledgement of your failures? (laughs) Anyone can respect a person, personal and honest admission of of failure. We're going to fail our families at times. We're not perfect. But when we do, we have an example. They need to see what people do when they fail. So when you fail in front of your wife and your kids, you do the right thing. Show them. Show them what being humble is all about. Right? The husband in our story, man, he failed himself and he failed his wife. He didn't lead and she followed when, we, when she shouldn't have and, and look at the result, verse 9. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the, entire, the whole church and upon the whole, all who heard of these things. Do you know this is the same word we see back in Acts chapter 2, verse 43? Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Same word there, phobos, from we get our word uh, phobia from, right? It means fear. This is a real, genuine fear that was going on. And I get it. If I experienced anything like this, I'd be a little nervous. You know, if, if the pastor of a church started calling out sin and people were dying in front of me, I'd be... I'd be scared. I'd grab Liz's hand and say, let's get out of here. <laughs> Scare me, you know? Fear's not something we put on our side out, uh, sign outside, you know, come and be afraid. It's not our slogan. We like slogans more like everyone's welcome, all are welcome, not like come and be afraid. 
This word is used in a variety of places in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, and it's used for reverence, respect, and awe. But I, I want us to dive a little deeper into that because it's more than just respect, like the way that you and I would think of respect today. You know, Liz and I served as missionaries for 10 years, and we got to live in India and Thailand, and she grew up in El Salvador. But living uh, on the east, the eastern part of the world, I was introduced to all kinds of different religions. So I met all these different people. I met uh, Hindu priests. I met uh, Buddhist monks. I met uh, uh, Muslim imams. I met all of these people from these different religions, and we would have these dialogues, and we would talk. And and uh, we, would, we wouldn't agree with, we obviously disagree with each other's beliefs, but we came to a place where we had uh, great respect for each other. You know, I, I, would, I disagree with them, but I respect them. That's not the kind of respect that you and I have for God. You don't disagree with God. This is deeper than just respect between two equals here. We don't, we, we, we tend to, we have this tendency to bring God down to our level, and we have a respect for him, but that's not what fear is. Fear is a deep reverence, a holy terror before God. And I know that's a strong word, but I think that's what the New Testament is teaching us here. A genuine fear before God. And it's exactly what we see in the Gospels when we see Jesus interacting with his disciples and he raises his hand and he calms the storm. What does the Bible say? The disciples were afraid. They weren't afraid because of the storm. They were afraid because this man was able to raise his hands and all, all of a sudden, the storm stopped and they realized that this man was not their equal. He was not their equal. When you, when you see Jesus heal a paralytic, the Bible says they feared Jesus. When he heals people and when he raises people from the dead, the reaction in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we see over and over and over again, is a fear of God. Fear's the reaction to seeing the worth of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the might of Jesus. In Proverbs 9.10, Solomon write, wrote this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean you sit around terrified of God. That's not, that's not what it is. It means you recognize the power and the value of something in your life. Pastor J.D. Greer, I know I love to quote him. He's just one of my favorite pastors, one of my favorite Bible teachers. He, he, he said, think of it like you fear the sun. Right? Most of us don't get up in the morning and think, man, what's the sun going to do to me today? We recognize its power, and we know it's necessary for life, and, and being in a wrong relationship with the sun, it can end in death. We fear, nobody would take their little brand new baby out and just put that baby out on a blanket right in the sun and leave the, sun ex, leave the baby exposed to the sun for hours. We wouldn't do that. Do you understand that? We, 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 under, we, we get... We get what the sun can do, but it's not like we wake up every day terrified of the sun. I can't go outside. But we have this, this respect for the sun. Man, if I'm going to go in the sun all day, I'm going to put on my sunscreen. I know what the sun can do. To fear God is to know how valuable he is in your life, how much you depend on him, and how foolish it would be to put yourself out of alignment with him. Right? Man, today, I'm going to close in prayer for this church corporately, but I want you to join with me and say a prayer personally. Again, I want you to answer the question, is there anything in me that would value my spiritual appearance more than my spiritual authenticity? And I want you to know this. The Holy Spirit knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts. You can't hide anything from him. And a day is coming when every secret is, is going to be proclaimed. Every hidden thing is going to be exposed. I hope you're ready for this. Because here's the scary thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they knew this. They had just forgotten it. 
They were so consumed with the praise of people, they forgot that the only one whose opinion really mattered was God. And a lot of church people are deceived, so consumed by their appearance on the outside that they neglect ever dealing with their heart before God. Now, I can't see inside of your heart. I don't have that ability. But I know this, as a church, the closer we get to grace, and I believe we are on the verge of a move. I believe the Holy Spirit is doing things in our church, in the the lives and the hearts of people who call New Heights Church their home church. I believe God's doing something. But as he moves in our church, as he moves in our family, guess what? Sin is going to be magnified, and that's a good thing. Sin is going to be exploded. (laughs) Well, that too, maybe. It's going to be exposed the closer we get to God. And I'm telling you, don't take holy things lightly. Don't do it. Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you are? Do you value your spiritual appearance more than your spiritual authenticity? And I know there's so many people in here who would say, man, Jesus is Lord. But what does our life look like the rest of the week? I don't care what we say when we come in here. We say Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is everything. We sing the songs, we, we raise our hands in worship. What does our life look like Monday through Friday? Do you know Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who gave up his life in South America, applied this to so many Christians, thousands of Christians who sang, I surrender all, but have given an unyielding no to God about giving their lives or their sons and their daughters to Christ on the mission field. What areas will you not surrender to God? Because what you see in Ananias and Sapphira, the two biggest areas are finances and our reputation. You want to find out how strong your commitment is to Jesus? You look at those two areas. Are you willing to obey Jesus with your money? Are you willing to stand up for Jesus and share with others regardless of what people are going to say about you? That is the question I want you to answer today. Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your word, even difficult passages like this. And I thank you that you are doing something at this church. I thank you for the growth we've seen. I thank you for, for all the wonderful things you're doing. God, I pray now that as we're, we're on the edge, we're about to experience this mighty move of the Holy Spirit. I, I just, I know it, you're doing something special here. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. God, that we would simply desire for you to be glorified, and that would be the motivating factor behind everything we do. And God, we want to be a movement not an organization. We want to be a movement that goes out and sees your name glorified all throughout the nations, all throughout Cincinnati, all throughout Ohio, all throughout America. Use us, God. Use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.